Hi, I'm Lars-Erik Lundin and welcome to this uh, podcast uh, trying to shed some light on an issue which is being discussed at most breakfast tables uh, around the world uh, currently, at least in Sweden and Europe, and that is the risk of escalation of the war in Ukraine, the unprovoked aggression of the Russian Federation against Ukraine. For many, this is an issue of the potential use of nuclear weapons in substrategic ones in Ukraine. But as we, we uh, that is Michael Salin and myself, will try to illustrate in this uh, podcast, it is a much more complex and uh, uh, wide and diverse issue than a matter of nuclear weapons. Uh, escalation can take place in many different ways and is dependent upon many different things. Uh, we start the podcast with uh, a general overview by Michael Salin, and then we go from the perspective of Sweden and Finland joining NATO and Sweden holding the rotating presidency of uh, the EU during the first half year of 2023. And then we move on to different aspects of uh, uh, escalation, escalatory threats as discussed by the NATO Secretary-General, by the Swedish Commander-in-Chief and others, uh, moving on to uh, how escalation is being seen as a necessary element uh, for Ukraine to win the war and as a threat, uh, of course, uh, to looking at it from the perspective of deterrence. Uh, looking at it from the perspective of the Russian Federation, of establishing red lines which don't hold, etc., etc. And of course, from the perspective of civil society, where the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize uh, laureates of this year uh, are of course fighting for freedom and uh, indeed victory of Ukraine. Um, for freedom in Belarus, for freedom in Russia, which in itself requires additional efforts, both in military and other ways. So I hope that, uh, and we hope, that this podcast will help you to uh, orient yourself in a very wide and unfortunately complex terrain of existential importance uh, for us all. Welcome. Michael, we are now resuming our podcasts uh, that we uh, used to do relatively regularly during the previous uh, uh, period of drafting books. Uh, we have written together several books about the southern dimension of European security about the situation in terms of security policy before the 24th of February. And you have been, but we have both been heavily involved in the production of a book about the situation partially after, uh, in terms of when it comes to Swedish security policy. So um, today um, we have agreed to make a podcast about a very topical issue in the debate right now for obvious reasons, 
the risk of escalation, the risk of escalation of the war in Ukraine in different ways. Uh, and uh, I have uh, taken the uh, liberty to start uh, collecting some material uh, in, in the form of sort of a mind map where I find uh, a lot of articles on the, the risk of ac accidental escalation, uh, including uh, close uh, to our borders in the Baltics, escalation inside Ukraine, of course, uh, horizontal escalation uh, beyond uh, uh, the issue of, of areas close to the Ukraine borders, but also in other dimensions, such as hybrid dimensions, the effective uh, results of military aid and relation to escalation, the critical issue of nuclear escalation risks, possible use of nuclear weapons, um, the question of de-escalation and negotiations, and of course, views of major actors on the escalation, including Scholz in Germany, uh, the US president, uh, the UK, France, etc. Uh, so it's a it's a very, very uh, extensive debate, uh, <clears throat> not very conclusive. There are there are different views, some focusing on the need for de-escalation negotiations, others focusing on the need to secure Ukraine victory. So, mm. what is your impression of the debate in general, yourself? My impression of the debate is that it is very tentative. It shows that we are in the stage of uh, of uh, terra incognita, unknown territory. Uh, it is a unique situation in the post, both not only post Cold War period, but also post Second World War period. And uh, actors and debaters are characterized by a great amount of anxiety before the unknown, since uh, everyone is uh, somehow concerned with not having a clue about what could the end game be on this. And uh, therefore, what would be uh, the kind and degree of further escalation be, and what are the risks involved? We have seen uh, both of us and discussed statements made by Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO chief, uh, saying and warning against uh, this situation, uh, against uh, the best wishes of all of us, uh, further escalating into a more full scale war between Russia and and uh, uh, NATO, and of course, this will involve Swedish security and Finnish security enormously now that we are uh, going to be members of NATO. And uh, therefore, the Swedish Supreme Commander was similarly expressing concerns at the unknown <clears throat> but threatening further de-escalation of this without any knowledge on the part of anyone uh, when it comes to how how can an outcome of this be, and what will the further action and reaction uh, theme be now that the West uh, is uh, or the US is um, announcing probable decision this week or next to to uh, deploy 
patriots uh, into territory uh, territory of Ukraine, and uh, now that uh, Russia is uh, threatening or pledging to uh, add a further wave of mobilization, adding two hundred thousand troops, uh, and that this causes the Ukraine government in, in turn to say that uh, we are expecting the, a new a new uh, offensive from Russia, maybe as early as January. So no doubt there is a great amount of both uncertainty, but also anxi anxiety on the part of main leaders now, because the end game of this is still unknown. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, against the backdrop of both uh, the, the, the image of all the all the articles and debate uh, elements that out there and and uh, what you just said as a as an overall summary and putting the whole thing into context now um we are going to make a little bit more systematic uh, run through of the various elements uh, will not, not be a complete picture of course but it will be, include uh, it will give hopefully you as a viewer or, or listener an idea of the scope of this debate, which is much wider than one would have thought. I mean, you, you might think that escalation is uh, okay, will there be a use of nuclear weapons or not? But in fact, escalation is a much wider issue. Uh, it, escalation has been going on for quite some time and will probably continue for some time further. And uh, we, are, we are situating this uh, presentation now in the context of the fact that Sweden is on its way together with Finland into NATO and uh, is uh, for the six coming months uh, holding the rotating presidency of the European Union. So it's a very crucial time for Sweden in term, terms of its the reorientation of its security policy externally and at the same time implementing a dramatic uh, a dramatic increase of uh, of its uh, uh, defense budget, uh, re-establishment of a civil defense which has been successively built down since uh, the end of the Cold War. So it's a really historic uh, changes that we are witnessing. So I'll just give you a, an overview picture now of the presentation that we will do, and then we will focus on the individual boxes in this. But first, Michael, you wanted to add something. The, this is the concept of gray area. Uh, yeah. We will come back to this, but I would like to mention it uh, initially as a, as a point of departure for us. The concept of gray area has been coined in defense planning circumstances uh, for quite uh, some years uh, now, uh, pointing in planning terms uh, to the existence, perhaps, of a condition of not peace, sort of a normal peace, uh, nor full-scale war, something in between, which in a, in an uh, in an era where there are other means of hostility than conventional or nuclear war, uh, you have hybrid methods, you have uh, cyber methods of uh, of uh, aggression which uh, rendered the concept of deterrence uh, more difficult in view of the anonymity uh, of the of the actor and therefore uh, complicating deterrence uh, now it seems that uh, in the planning uh, rooms halls of sweden 
launching, for example, a defense planning commission again. Uh, the concept of uh, gray area has uh, taken on a new status. Uh, we are saying that we are now in such a gray area of in between full scale war and and uh, normal peace. I say normal peace, meaning the way we understood the word peace uh, in the post Cold War era. And this uh, provides us, Lashik, uh, with a very uh, important, I think, an interesting point of departure. Where yeah. are we now? So I put that in, in the map here. So what you see in front of you is, is simply the map uh, without any uh, ingredients uh, uh, for the time being, uh, where you can see Ukraine more or less in the center, but where you also see that uh, Sweden and Finland and Norway together, they occupy quite a substantial part of this European uh, map, almost half of the north-south uh, distance. And uh, as has been mentioned by the Swedish government recently, uh, the hostilities in Ukraine uh, are some, you know, not too far from Sweden. It's about uh, a little bit more than the distance between uh, uh, Stockholm and Malmö. So it's not uh, it's not a huge distance that we have to this war. Uh, it may seem far away sometimes, but in reality, I think most Swedes have learned to understand that that uh, uh, the war is coming has come much closer to us. So and I topic. think we should we should add here also that this uh, illustrates the consequence of NATO enlargement, adding yeah. uh, relevant territory, uh, adding a long uh, border stretch to what NATO has been defending so far, which highlights the, the significance of this step of NATO Absolute. enlargement. Absolutely, and it's really a huge uh, so. So it complicates uh, defense for NATO, but it adds also enormous assets, uh, in fact, in, uh, particularly when it comes to Air, air Force assets uh, already now existing in the northern area. And it so, affects the, the, the character of the Baltic Sea becoming yeah, more or less... Ma Mare Nostrum for NATO almost. Uh, so so that's, uh, at the same time, you see uh, the Russian Navy and the Black Sea being uh, threatened. So. There are significant uh, geopolitical, geostrategic changes underway in Europe, uh, which um, uh, obviously are perceived as threatening in Russia. So the topic of this presentation is the risk of escalation of the Russian war against Ukraine. The point of departure, uh, going to the middle of the, of the screen here, is that Sweden and Finland are on their way into NATO at the period of heightened tension and war in Europe. And the fact that we are on the, our way into NATO is, not, of course, then not a coincidence, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a development which has culminated with 24th of February that really has made this move absolutely necessary, which has convinced the Swedish population to to a very large extent of the necessity of this, following a similar move in Finland, of course, which came before us. And here, largely, we have an example of a, a concept pair that we have been working on in earlier publications, namely the, uh, the concepts of action, reaction, <clears throat> and the di dynamics uh, characterized by process of action, reaction. And in this case, it is Sweden and Finland reacting to the Russian statements uh, uh, one year ago concerning uh, their view of uh, security architecture and then followed up by the Russian aggression 
against Ukraine, leaving Sweden and Finland with no choice but to to go all the way in the process that had been going on for many years and then yeah. applying for full membership. So I added that box here as well. And uh, we note then immediately that the war is escalating in different ways. You mentioned the existing of a gray zone between war and peace, uh, which has been adopted, the perspective which have been adopted by the Defense Planning uh, Commission. On the Russian side, it has, of course, been argued that war has been underway for a considerable way, uh, period in different dimensions. And, uh, and uh, in this war, different types of weapons have been used, including hybrid ones. But also, importantly, it is perceived on the Russian side that NATO and EU enlargement is a part of this uh, hostile action against the Russian Federation. You mentioned also that the NATO Secretary General and echoed, echoing him, the Swedish Commander-in-Chief, are on record warning against the further escalation to weapons of mass destruction. This is something which was explicitly said by the Swedish Commander-in-Chief when he was asked, you know, as a escalation, what do you mean? Well, I mean weapons of mass destruction. It doesn't have to be nuclear, it could also be chemical. And of course, chemical that reminds, or biological that reminds of the fact that we are not just necessarily talking about weapons of mass destruction in terms of huge destruction of, of uh, critical infrastructure or, or uh, masses of human lives, but also selective use of, uh, of weapons of mass destruction, for instance, poisoning individuals and so on. Yeah, and of course, uh, when we talk about escalation, as we will come into uh, a bit later, has other dimension to it yeah. than escalating means of uh, warfare. It could also yeah. be territorial escalation. And, and I, I tried to illustrate that already uh, when referring to the literature, that there are different uh, perspectives of... Uh, on, uh, one may think that it's only a question of escalation inside Ukraine, but it can also be to other countries and it can be in other dimensions and geographic and can also be a virtual a virtual uh, escalation there are different domains of security policy here involved mm. and um, so this certainly as you already mentioned has a close relationship to the process of eu and nato enlargement where sweden has this role as i mentioned of rotating presidency now being an important actor in managing the process of enlargement of the EU, where uh, Ukraine and Moldova are now important um, targets uh, for integration. Whereas on the other hand, we are more of subjects uh, or objects of, uh, of uh, uh, what, what NATO members uh, feel about our uh, in integration into the NATO as an alliance, where Turkey and Hungary uh, uh, currently are slowing down this process of integration, which almost is complete in terms of ratification of our accession instrument. And uh, uh, this obviously has to do with something that you are strongly engaged uh, both uh, analyzing the motives of Turkey and Swedish position vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, uh, Hungary, what are the motives there, which are also closely related to its situation inside EU. 
I don't know if you want to say something already here about those two actors. I, mean, uh, I could uh, say a few words about that at this stage. Uh, uh, because uh, I see those issues, the question of Hungary and the question of Turkey, both still today uh, not having ratified this, uh, the Swedish-Finnish uh, applications uh, and invitee status, I should add, uh, for NATO membership, making it possible and imperative for those two countries, uh, Finland and Sweden, to be busy preparing for the full, uh, full membership preparing politically and especially militarily and in civil defense in all sorts of ways such that once it is clarified that, that all all hindrances are gone then we will uh, be instantly ready for for full membership and uh, i think everyone has an eye on on the vilnius summit of nato in july this summer as, as a key key point similar to the way the Madrid summit was a key to allowing this process of integration that have, we have been preparing so long. I think I see that uh, Hungary in its way and Turkey in its way are examples of uh, threats to um, cohesion within NATO and, and EU in parallel. Uh, and this uh, I see as one of the big issues or big challenges um, before the uh, looking into the future when it is so important that the west uh, in, in as a whole sticks together and uh, can act in a in a, a un unitarian unity way uh, against threats both from russia and, and beyond in fact so uh, these are new and old uh, reminders of all the work that still needs to be done in order to build confidence and build co cooperativeness in in uh, in in the West. Uh, I say the West as a as a concept for covering the whole, meaning EU and NATO in various ways. Uh, Hungary has a problematic role in the EU, especially, and Turkey not being a member of the EU but being a full member of NATO since fifty two. Is Hungary, uh, Turkey is a problematic member of, but still a member, and therefore we, as new newcomers into NATO, must find a way to uh, to uh, to uh, deepen relations, uh, deepening also understanding for what security means for this uh, fringe country of of uh, of uh, let's say of Europe. So um, it's a it's a very it's going to be a very uh, interesting analytically and demanding politically process of handling both the EU hat as presidency and at the same time and in parallel deal with the outstanding uh, hindrances to Hungarian and Turkish acceptance of us uh, as an example of their general acceptance of uh, open the NATO's open door policy, open door policy, but they have their own sort of domestic problems to be building yeah. into this. So I'm just pointing to a very challenging parallel yeah. process. In and, the spring. Uh, can we not say uh, now that uh, the debate uh, around uh, the enlargement of NATO, uh, when it comes to Sweden and Finland, has shifted in the recent period? from initially focusing on the benefits that Sweden and Finland would get as members of NATO 
to more and more focusing on the ongoing reform of NATO structures, command organization, uh, the relationship between Brunsum and, 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 and the, the, the command in, in, in the UK, etc. All of these organizational uh, processes which are underway in NATO obviously are slowed down because of the lack of ratification of the, of, of the final yeah. And this, yeah. of course, obviously serves Russian interests. We, we have to be, we have to be uh, transparent and clear about the fact that the, the current slowdown is not in the interest of NATO. And that has been relatively clearly said, relatively clearly said, not least by Secretary of State Blinken recently, that NATO mm -hmm. needs to have this process finalized very soon in order to be able to continue to beef up its organization in the case of a possible horizontal escalation of the conflict. Yeah. There has been a, a, a clear trend since Madrid, the Madrid summit of uh, all NATO, 28 NATO countries. Hungary is a special case, uh, and I will come back to Hungary in a moment. But uh, to say uh, state support for our membership, not because of us so much as because of the needs of NATO, to have us uh, add add capacities, add geography, uh, etc., in the overall defense against Russian aggression, and that is the overriding concern here. So, uh, from the point of view of Sweden and Finland, we have been keen to respond to this by by stating our readiness not just to receive the the security guarantees from a NATO membership, but also to provide assets to and capacities to the the combined uh, NATO roles in various ways. Uh, and you're so right in also pointing to the reforms uh, going on and the adaptations within NATO to in the organizationally to to sharpen its its uh, a capacity to and the will to resist further Russian aggression. And that brings us back to the uh, escalation is issue, by the way. Yeah. So uh, I can only conclude on this point that uh, this is a very interesting next uh, six or seven months that we are yeah. facing now. So um, uh, obviously some would argue that uh, if we get more time before Sweden, the Swedish and Finnish succession, that will also slow down the inevitable reaction from the Russian side, the delay reaction from the Russian side. and give us more chance to prepare for that reaction, whatever it will entail. Uh, on the other hand, it's clear that the NATO reform needs clarity about, for instance, uh, uh, the organization of, of the commands in, in relation to Swedish territory, whether Sweden would be part of one or, or divided between two, two commands in NATO and so on, so, and, and how the different air forces will be organized uh, in, in and we are talking about very potent air force capabilities in the north, with uh, with three countries uh, opting for for F thirty five and uh, Sweden having, of course, a, a very potent uh, air force already uh, based upon uh, uh, interoperable um, uh, assets uh, with Gripen and so forth. So uh, now the escalation will mean, of course, that. Uh, uh, one has to analyze the resources at the disposal of the Russian Federation in order to respond. Um, and, and here it's clear that and there is already a lot of uh, speculation 
perhaps not always based on substance uh, in the in the media about how much resources Russia has at its disposal or can mobilize in order to to further escalate. Um, we have. Uh, can I, before you before you continue, Lars Erik, yeah? I would like to comment on that uh, that uh, box about because it, it does say respond to further escal escalatory efforts in the west uh, or by the west uh, of course uh, as we have seen in in the in the debate uh, and uh, from information from various capitals the dilemma of the west all along has been how to support ukraine in its uh, defense against russian aggression without providing or, or giving it an escalatory yeah. uh, function. The, this has been seen to be the, the dilemma, and this is uh, the main thread of this whole conversation that we are having now, how to avoid contributing to further escalation, if you can, uh, while continuing and, and deepening your support for, uh, for Ukraine in its, its uh, defense. So you have the question here also of what is defensive and what is offensive. Yeah. That's another key concept uh, that we have been spending a lot of time with before and and, and the the, the um, what is often uh, forgotten when you talk about military assistance uh, in this case to ukraine is that it enables uh ukraine to do things that it otherwise could not do so mm -hmm. we, when you mention patriot and so forth and and uh, when you mention when one could mention uh, what Elon Musk has done in order to help uh, Ukraine to communicate uh, despite uh, interrupted telecommunications and so forth through Starlink. You actually talk about enabling Ukraine to escalate because Ukraine, Ukraine is clearly escalating the war into Russian territory um, and uh, of course to annex uh, Ukraine territory, including Crimea here. And they couldn't but, do, they couldn't do it if they hadn't had um, the essential uh, technical support from the West to do that. And of course, here uh, the United States has been careful. Other countries have been less careful. But in from a Russian perspective, it is seen as escalation. You have seen a tendency uh, in in NATO for some countries, mainly those that are immediate neighbors of Russia, to be uh, expressing themselves more sort of activistically uh, or yeah. offensively than others. So there is a function here of the further away from Russia, the less less activist you are in, in the views of what the West needs to do here. But since you mentioned Elon Musk, I also have to uh, sort of point out that we have this uh, the paradox in a way that uh, the same Elon Musk uh, now own, uh, in ownership of Twitter, linking him to Donald Trump, and then you have uh, the on, on that part of the spectrum you have the the big questions about who uh, this U.S. in all this, and we yeah. are entering now or at the same time into a new post-midterm election period in the West, where the Republicans dominate now, although uh, with a small narrow, the, the, the House, and that uh, and they have been uh, sort of questioning, some of them have been questioning whether the degree of support for, uh, for Ukraine that uh, the Biden administration has carried out so far, 
has been, at least they are questioning how sustainable that is. And then that brings us to the question of uncertainties within the West and the question of sustainability of the efforts uh, yeah. as the war in Ukraine drags on. So, so that's um, uh, when you say that uh, Ukraine must win, the question is what that what does that mean? I mean, because that's uh, in order to get there, you need to escalate the efforts, obviously. And you need to try to drain the Russian resources in different ways. And here the EU plays an important role. The number of sanctions, uh, currently we have nine sanct sanctions packages. There will soon be more, I think. Uh, we have price caps on energy. We have a diversification of energy supply, uh, supplies. We have also uh, uh, difficulty on the Russian side to get spare parts where, where not only countries, but also the EU has, has a role. Uh, you have the need for Russia to replace, uh, replenish its, its supply of ammunition in order to, to I mean, there have been a maximum figure I heard was about 60,000 shells in one single day. So they have, uh, not only the West have a problem in terms of ammunition, also Russia has a problem. We don't know how serious it is. Uh, we know that Russian on Russian soil, the Ukraine use of drones, uh, long-range drones and so on, has made it uh, clear that Russia has no sanctuary anymore within uh, 300, uh, 400, 500 kilometers of the border to Ukraine. No sanctuary, sanctuary for ammunition depots or training grounds or command centers. So all this is... Uh, is very uh, dangerous for Russia, uh, puts uh, limites, uh, limitations on what they can do uh, in order to, to prepare for this offensive that you mentioned before. Mm. We have the question of casualties, low morale, um, newly mobilized soldiers are suffering, uh, of course, in the trenches now, very close to the picture one has in from the First World War of trenches in France. So uh, it's very different from the Ukraine uh, mobilization, which has gone over, on over eight years, uh, where they have, of course, been able to prepare themselves for winter conditions much better than these newly mobilized Russian soldiers. I would like to add two aspects here, unless I'm interrupting you from a sort of a line. No, 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 no. that's it. Uh, and that is, on, on the one hand, uh, we're talking here uh, uh, in a sort of balanced way of the mutual uh, degree of suffering and losses on the two sides. We, we lack information uh, largely about uh, the Ukrainian side. They have decided to uh, look upon this as a, a question of national uh, sort of secrecy, uh, how big the losses have been. It is understandable by the West, of course, that they look upon it this way, but it uh, doesn't help us analysts to fully understand what I, what is the degree and the toll of, of this war. Uh, but uh, but it is so important to have a deepened understanding of uh, what is the cost, what is the toll uh, of this war, as we measure uh, capacities uh, on the part of the two sides to continue with this war, because that somehow has uh, gives us a basis for assessing at least how, how long could it last and what could be the, the outcome. I would also add, since you again mentioned Hungary, that uh, 
that uh, they accepted uh, uh, in the EU summit the other day to not any longer veto or block the uh, the uh, sanctions package as conceived by the Commission, which was part of a provisional deal with Hungary uh, between Hungary and the and the Commission concerning uh, funds uh, to be put at the at the uh, use for for Hungary uh, much needed because Hungary is so exposed to the uh, energy crisis because it doesn't have much of its own and it's completely dependent on the deliveries from Russia and therefore they are reluctant to be part of sanctions policies etc so it is a, it's an example of of what it takes and what the, the degree of seriousness concerning keeping the west together and the west uh, yeah. including hungary and uh, therefore i think that with this agreement now there is not any longer any political hindrance if there ever was one for hungary to ratify the the swedish finnish uh, application for membership problem now is that uh, the the hungarian uh, parliament reconvenes only on february 20 which brings us in deep into springtime uh, spring semester before uh, a hungarian ratification can take place which is a complication in combination with this uh, turkish problem yeah exactly and then we come back to the issue of uh, deterrence uh, because um, obviously the the calculation on the russian side must have been that their uh, uh, capabilities on, on the nuclear level should uh, have discouraged uh, the West from supporting Ukraine on a on a big time level, so to say. That, that's what was clearly their hope. This is now uh, slowly being eroded. Uh, this uh, this deterrence effect, and uh, uh, if you talk about patriots and so on, you are now coming close to a situation which. The Americans were not at all contemplating at the beginning of of, of the war. So the, there is a steady erosion of the deterrence effect on the Russian side. They are obviously also faced with the situation that even if they have formally annexed the territories into the Russian Federation, this has in no way diminished the Ukraine uh, war efforts uh, in inside uh, Russian in, inside Ukraine territory, including the annexed territories and even uh, allow the Ukraines to go into Russian territory, although this has been uh, not, not done in a very open way. Mm. So um, uh, the Ukraine morale, as we have several indications of this very recently, or from Swedish news reports on the ground in, in Kiev and Kharkiv and others, uh, that the, the general impression is that the morale is very, very high, and, and that the use of uh, sub-strategic nuclear weapons on Ukraine soil has not sunk in as a major threat, which has reduced morale. Um, and here, and here, Lars-Erik, if I may here uh, just say that uh, the question of deterrence uh, is uh, is an enormously important uh, discourse now, uh, as we face the future. Um, you could discuss this in various ways. Has nuclear deterrence worked or has it not worked? And there you can apply different kinds of arguments as we have seen in the literature. But clearly on, in the, on this point, 
uh, when when the Putin decided to launch the annexation part of the whole oblasts of Donetsk uh, and Luhansk, uh, many could see this as a as an attempt to draw a red line, uh, and then referring to the uh, doctrine uh, of Russia, saying that when there is a uh, clear threat to the existence of, of the country, uh, meaning open attack, then then that realizes the, the nuclear option. There, there have been sort of references made to it, but that has, as you say, been now eroded. Uh, the, the, their bluff has been called uh, of sorts. Yeah. Mm? Um, so uh, the bottom line when it comes to nuclear weapons is uh, according to Western commentators, experts on nuclear weapons, is that, that substituted nuclear weapons are not really useful from a military point of view. That's why they were uh, taken away from uh, Europe uh, from a level of almost 7,000, I think, uh, tactical nuclear weapons in the, on the NATO side were removed from Europe. Clearly demonstrates that if NATO had thought that those would have been militarily important for NATO, they would have been kept to a larger extent. They, they are not. Um, Russia... But, the, que but the question now is, uh, will, will NATO uh, rethink this now or not? The way the Ukraine war has uh, evolved. We'll see. We will see. But um, it's very difficult to see what what military difference as such it unless it's a, it is a, it is an effect gives an, a serious effect on morale then of mm. course it might be important now on the other hand uh, the russian threat perceptions uh, are according to their commentators on the media are elevated when it comes uh, to threats against even moscow has been mentioned i've seen tv uh, TV programs in, in Russia where they mentioned the, the likelihood or possibility that Russia be, will be hit by conventional weapons from Ukraine in the, in the coming period. And we have the immediate threats against the Russian presence in Crimea with the Black Sea fleet uh, already having been decimated of the flagship Moscow. Moskva is, of course, uh, uh, a major blow to Russia and, and uh, the future of the the Black Sea fleet, and maybe you want to say something about that since you have been working a long time on trying to uh, draw attention to the importance of the of the Black Sea in this uh, in the, this whole picture. I mean, all of this yeah. must be perceived as rather threatening from the Russian perspective. Yes, uh, and uh, the the question of the Black Sea and uh, and uh, the uh, the. Uh, balance of forces in that uh, is uh, one of the unknown consequences still to be foreseen uh, from the from the Ukraine war development and it involves uh, Turkey enormously and that's why also Turkey's importance generally uh, as a NATO member but a NATO member with uh, ambitions to be strategically uh, autonomous in its uh, way uh, in order to react in a relevant way to to the historical and geographical facts of this country so uh, it's, a, it's a very tricky balancing game for 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 nato and for the us 
and for the EU, of course, uh, to, uh, to balance uh, the importance of Turkey uh, because of its uh, different uh, difference in, in many ways to mainstream NATO. So the Black Sea uh, correlation of forces uh, it will be dependent on the outcome also of current discussions about the Montreal Convention from 1936, which regulated the entry into and exit from from the Black Sea through the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, the, the mm. Turkish Straits. And there uh, you have the role of Turkey as the owner of that convention in, in many ways, but with some restrictions under that convention. But it has uh, made Turkey decide to close uh, the uh, the straits uh, to, from uh, military passage of belligerency Ukraine and and Russia and then you have the fact that uh, the grain the the uh, the enormous uh, wheat and uh, barley etc and and uh, other um, agricultural products from the big fields of Ukraine and also Russia and their exit to world markets and uh, to uh, to feed the, the the famine threats and the countries in in East Africa etc this has taken the uh, the crisis uh, even more to a global level than needed to have been the case and therefore involves uh, other players but the west versus versus Russia so Enormous implications and, uh, and, uh, what, how Russia will act in the, in terms of escalation of this, uh, of this conflict, uh, responding to perceived threats from the West to its Black Sea fleet. There has been mentioned, mentioned, for example, that uh, there could be a big uh, sort of conventional Western attack on its fleet. And if uh, that were to happen in response to something, then, uh, uh Russia would be very vulnerable to to the capacities of the West uh, in those terms, but it takes uh, moving the whole situation from peacetime regulations to uh, something else, uh, and that uh, largely depends on decisions by by Turkey, and secondarily to the other Black Sea, the littoral states, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Georgia. Uh, and uh, and of course Ukraine and Russia. So I mean, there is a lot of developments there that could be part of of our discussion now, which is what could be the quality and direction of further escalation. Yeah. So you constantly have to balance the 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 natural wish uh, for victory or progress on the on on the battlefield with the risk of escalation. Uh, where uh, cl clearly Crimea has a, a has a different quality than than the Donbass region. Yes. Now, and the, to the in the wider picture, of course, of, of deterrence and uh, the preventing the escalation, you have the, also the, on the global level what has happened uh, uh, after high level contacts between. Uh, between uh, uh, Germany and China, for instance, with Scholz's visit to China and the G20 meeting and the, the, the declaration of nuclear weapons, first made by the P5 uh, permanent members of the Security Council in the beginning of the year and then repeated by the G20 countries uh, in more or less uh, silently uh, witnessed by Russia. All of this has to do with what are the strategic interests of China and India here? 
and other uh, major actors. We know from a recent vote in the UN that uh, China and, 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 and India are still performing a strategic balancing act vis-a-vis -vis the conflict. Uh, China is even some ways supporting Ukraine. They are, uh, they are clear on, on the nuclear issue, uh, but they are much less clear when it comes to more specific UN, con uh, UN votes where China tends to, uh, to sometimes even align with Russia against the rest of, of, uh, of at least against the West. So um, uh, if you look at the map, again, obviously the, the fact that there is a war going on affecting a, a, a large part of the north-south distances through Europe means that uh, China has had much more difficulties to come through with its transports, its, uh, its uh, belt and road policies towards the west. And uh, there is a threat here for, Russia, uh, for Chinese uh, plans for for its uh, Belt and Road policies over the long term if this war continues too long. Yeah. On the other hand, of course, uh, China has, uh, and so does India, strategic interest to align with Russia in, uh, in exploiting the Arctic uh, situation uh, due to the climate change. So there are mixed motives here in this strategic balancing act, but there are certain, um, there's certainly a, a a restraining factor on on Russian willingness to escalate here. You, you could add also here that, uh, of course, there has been ongoing you know, for some time a U.S.-led Western effort to to mobilize support for its perception of this uh, conflict to be one of uh, much much uh, larger scope than simply a sort of an intra-European thing yeah. that others can ignore or try to uh, to. They stay out of for the time being, seeing who, who prevails. So um, uh, one thing is, of course, U.S. policies in vis-a-vis uh, -vis and in support of. Uh, currently, for example, uh, even Japan is talking about uh, adding to its defense uh, budgetary constraints of the constitutionally of the past, and now they are talking about increasing to the NATO-specific two percent of GDP and the GDP. In Japan, of course, is a, is a large sum, like in Germany. So two percent means a lot of defense uh, yeah. budgetary allocations. Uh, so interestingly, uh, and so Japan, uh, I don't know, I don't have uh, current figures about uh, South Korea, but uh, we, you and I, saw an article only yesterday uh, concerning what what this AUKUS uh, agreement between. Uh, UK, US, and Australia means in terms beyond, well beyond the submarine, nuclear submarine uh, area to uh, much wider uh, issues. I mean, so there is a lot of things going on. And meanwhile, also the US policy uh, has been one also to try to mobilize support for African countries. So there was a was uh, only only the other day uh, uh, a U.S. summoned uh, session in in Washington with uh, quite a number of African heads of state, even um, convening uh, or being summoned by the U.S. Uh, yeah. in their attempt to mobilize support. So there there is a global struggle uh, for the souls of the countries yeah. in relation to this conflict. No, and and then of course when you mentioned the United States. 
uh, it must have been a big disappointment uh, what came out of the midterm elections for Russia, uh, that um, Biden was able to keep uh, uh, keep uh, control over the Senate. And on top of this, uh, the um, apparent failure of Trump for the time being, at least, to withstand uh, uh, the tendency to uh, for the Republican voters to to think in uh, in support of Trump's policies or at attitudes, uh, but wishing for having someone else than Trump <laughs> representing yes. those the uh, Santis who have uh, who's now overtaken Trump in the polls. So, so timing is important here. Uh, what is the what is the window open to Russia here? How much time do they have actually to 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 uh, to change the situation to somewhat more favorable to them, we don't know. But uh, the U.S. situation is obviously key here, uh, since the U.S. in any case is providing the bulk of the support to Ukraine militarily. Mm. Clearly so. And uh, as I said before, uh, as we enter into the next year, the Republicans will be in in, uh, in the majority of uh, of the House and. Uh, if this will uh, change the situation concerning the willingness to continue in an endurable way, once they see that this war is not going to end anytime soon, then uh, this will have a huge impact. And, and of course, there's a lot of potential for further polarization in the US policy because the January 6th commission is now about to issue its recommendations to the, uh, to the, uh, uh, to the uh, Ministry of Justice uh, and uh, whether they, they recommend uh, it to uh, persecute uh, Donald Trump, which will uh, enrage uh, the, the, his um, base politically and frighten other Republicans. So there's a lot of drama uh, still to be expected in U.S. policies uh, as from now until the next election. And now when we, yeah. So one, when we then move to to the to the concluding questions here on, on this uh, this podcast, uh, what kind of escalation do we, at the minimum, foresee? Uh, and I say at the minimum because of course we cannot exclude weapons of mass destruction either. I think we at least uh, um, it's with without too much spe speculation. We I think we can expect some sort of. Um, if Russians find some way of uh, disturbing critical infrastructure in Europe, uh, having selective attacks, uh, supporting attacks, uh, maybe on individuals through uh, using proxies like terrorists, uh, mm -hmm. using new forms of Wagner Group <laughs> formations. You know, I think we, we need to be aware of the risk of increased cyber attacks, uh, different uh, different uh, uh, things that might mean a disturbance of, uh, of our civil society uh, functioning. Um, if they can do it in a deniable way, then, then of course, uh, it, it might be an option for, for Russians to, to escalate in a horizontal fashion, fashion, as long as, I would argue, this doesn't strengthen uh, Western morale substantially, because then it would be, of course, counterproductive from from the Russian perspective. Yeah. 
And yeah, well, I, it, uh, yeah. okay, now continue, please. No, no, so, so I, I think that uh, what the EU means, uh, NATO means here, is a, it's really this 360, if the Russians have a 360 degree threat perception, then we need to promote a 360 degree awareness of that threats may come from different directions here, also from the south. It's been, uh, there's been explicitly mentioned that uh, Russia might uh, wish to promote further migration crises uh, by disturbances, of course, in the south. Um, so, so resilience is important for us. It's important to uh, quickly move forward beyond organizational discussions about civil defense to actual uh, I would say urgent action in Sweden and, and other countries to beef up civil defense. Um, mm. And um, I, I don't at all ex uh, exclude that we might come into a crisis management mode here uh, sooner or later, where we, just as we did during the pandemic, are forced to, uh, to uh, constantly inform the Swedish public and work together on the European level to manage different ongoing uh, attacks against critical infrastructure and so forth. We, mm -hmm. we, we know that uh, we have problems with energy here. We might have further problems uh, like uh, Nord Stream, uh, the Nord Stream example. Yeah. Now, Eric, uh, let me co comment on this. Uh, I think there is... Uh... Two things to add on this point to what you said and to what is stated in the in the picture. One is that concerning the nature of the crisis. In an earlier slide, you had the the the, the term proxy war, and uh, and I would like to expand on on that concept because uh, uh, you could say uh, that uh, as as has been the case in so many other conflicts, less central to, to world peace than the current one, uh, to see that the proxy war has been uh, become a constant feature in the crisis in Syria and in, in Libya, what have you, Afghanistan, that you have local partners, uh, parties uh, to the conflict, and then you have their supporting structures, and, uh, and then somehow the growing vested interest on the part part of those supporting persons to at least see to it that the other side does not win. And that in that sort of process of stiffening of the conflict with uh, with local part, uh, parties uh, to the conflict and then being supported by their supporting structures with, uh, with an uh, increasing, uh, increasingly entrenched uh, interest in seeing to it at least that the other side does not win, and therefore, uh, and this is this is mutual. It becomes a sort of an, a, a growing thing. Uh, in this case now with Ukraine, uh, you could of course say that this is a proxy war, uh, at least in the in the Russian per perception, because it is a fact and an increasingly obvious fact, also qualitatively that we in the West, uh, I say we because uh, well, that includes Sweden, has been increasingly willing to render a military support, not troops on the ground, nor no-fly zones or Western planes fly the skies of Ukraine, fighting, uh, fighting Russian planes, for example. Not that, but increasingly 
uh, heavy and uh, and ambitious uh, military equipment support plus financial support plus uh, extending the sanctions on the other side. Uh, what is that uh, but a proxy war, at least uh, in the eyes of Russia, that we, we are actively involved in supporting militarily support? The only restriction so far being uh, boots on the ground and planes in the in the skies. So uh, with this being the case, uh, I think when when uh, Jens Stoltenberg and uh, others, uh, including our representatives, are discussing, so what what where are we now? What is the real risk of this uh, escalating against our best wishes? Uh, into something uh, more concrete, some concrete going from proxy war to direct war between NATO and and uh, Russia. Then, of course, uh, you have to look at the current situation, not just as a gray area, but also one where at least one could say that we are in a state of proxy war, actively militarily supporting one side in a European conflict. And what can, could come next in the action-reaction further process and then uh, commenting on your last points, uh, I would also say that we have to remember concerning uh, the atmosphere of grey area, atmosphere of crisis and the daily press conferences, perhaps that we, in, in addition to this geopolitical crisis, we are having, we, the, the world, in fact, having to deal with other crises, yeah. the climate crisis, the, the uh, migration crisis, uh, uh, financial crisis, uh, what have you. I, uh, there are other things to add on the list of crises, which are also part of the broader security crisis uh, atmosphere and context that we are dealing with, necessitating, I also think, uh, uh, a more visible uh, manifestation of this in terms of constant issues uh, arising with the vulnerability of modern society be, being built for so long on mechanisms uh, like uh, instant supplies from the world markets to our uh, yeah. industries etc that uh, that will that are vulnerable in in these various ways to the these various crises so it's a it's a completely new context from the yeah. calm that we've seen so far I think that the hope we can have here is that the National Security Council, which is being created now or, or institutionalized in a more credible way in Sweden, uh, might mean that uh, we, we will have we will have sort of more or less weekly and daily press briefings and, and information to the public of, of with the, putting everything into perspective, so to say, putting the entire spectrum of threats and opportunities into in the security area into perspective that is probably uh, a relatively low hanging fruit actually if you if you think of the the fact that uh, um, uh, Henrik Landrum who we both uh, know as a very experienced uh, and uh, with a, uh, experienced person uh, uh, can can at an early stage help to create a uh, coherent picture of our security challenges, given the fact that we have converging crisis, interrelated crisis all over the place. And that uh, would make it a little bit better, perhaps, than we had during the pandemic, where, we, where there was a tendency to, to see different things separately. So. 
Yeah, and also uh, the difference I think will be uh, that in the in the context of Nordic cooperation, uh, we are going to see much more coherence now than the strains provided by the pandemic, yeah. because that tended to uh, yeah. to uh, split the Nordics into various interests and sub-interests, etc. So, so we're not going to see that. The I, have a I have a final comment to all this, but please go ahead with this picture. And I just wanted to say that when we talk about uh, escalation horizontally um, in some way to the West, we have to also to, to remember that there are acute risks of escalation of the conflict to the East, uh, because there is a, there is now very threatening language being used, for instance, by the Russian ambassador to Kazakhstan against uh, against uh, Kazakhstan, talking about Nazis in this country, talking about the need for a special operation and so forth. So, so that's also very worrying from a, from a Russian perspective. So, because there is a military alliance, many people don't know about that it exists, but there is a CSDO alliance which includes Kazakhstan and some other countries over there, and and Kazakhstan is an important country uh, with a very large number of Russian speaking uh, people and uh, large uh, important resources. Mm. So, so um, escalation, we have already seen escalation before in Azerbaijan-Armenia case. Uh, that could very well be uh, significant. We have had a war or a conflict recently between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, where the leaders of those countries have lamented that the Russians have not been helpful. Uh, so there is a risk of implosion on that side as well. Mm. And you have the the Georgia inheritance from two thousand eight. Yes. yes, of course, of course. And uh, and, the, and then you have Belarus uh, as a as a very important uh, yeah. component to this whole thing. So so um, and and here is a is a strange thing. I wanted to actually finish for my part on this uh, on this note that. Uh, sometimes you would expect that um, that those. Uh, receiving the peace prize are people who who try to to uh, calm down and uh, and uh, reduce level of conflict and so forth but in fact uh, we can say that this year's uh, peace prize has been given to people who actually are uh, bravely fighting for freedom human rights democracy rule of law in their countries uh, I'm talking about Belarus, I'm talking about Russia, uh, in a way which is perceived as a, a fight for regime change in these countries. I mean, clearly, we are not talking about um, appeasement. Uh, we are talking about uh, a very, uh, very resolute support for what Ukraine is, is trying to achieve as well. So, uh, uh, when you have that sentiment very clearly on the level of civil society, this obviously also is uh, perceived on the Russian side as an as a factor of escalation, as as a factor of threat, which is uh, very central to the Russian even military doctrine that color revolutions and so forth are very very dangerous to systemic stability in Russia. So we are in a situation where where uh, there is a very, very strong support in Sweden for accession to NATO, 
very high, in, in, even in comparison with many NATO members. And there is also strong civil society support for a resolute support to Ukraine. So we have to expect that, uh, that if we have that position, it will also cost in terms of dramatic, potentially dramatic um, contradictions with the Russian interests. Hmm. Let me say then, as my final uh, addition to this conversation, which I feel has been very useful, Lars Erik, uh, that um, we have we have to uh, face the fact that we are, as I, I was trying to say in the beginning, in a situation uh, where uh, where you can call it a gray area, but you can also point to, I think, the fact that no no one really knows how to act in a more long-term fashion because we are in an un unknown territory and hence the warning sounds from uh, yeah, Stoltenberg and others that uh, now, now the, we cannot rule out uh, rather nasty developments which will immediately affect us. Meanwhile, and since the war seems to be so so lasting because there is i mean that's one of the reasons why we are saying that we don't know what the end game will be and uh meanwhile uh you could say also that our neighboring uh, baltic countries uh they have been uh, putting all their eggs uh, in the deterrence basket and for them deterrence has been uh, clearly stated to be that uh, to be saying openly that the only outcome of this is to defeat Russia. And if you take a long-term view on, on this and what this will mean in a long-term fashion with, uh, without regard to uh, what will happen in the Kremlin, I think this is one of the parameters of a very lasting conflict. There are many others too with Russia, whether even if the, the armed, uh, armed war is, is somehow finding a way out or to be, to be stalled or hindered. But I see uh, very uh, a long stretch of uh, of uh, of a journey to find a new kind of uh, sound stability in Europe uh, and relations with Baltic countries and Russia is just one of them. Another another aspect here is you mentioned Poland here, and uh, of course with Poland um, arming uh, surprisingly quickly, but it is facing elections uh, next fall. And then we'll see about the regime and what this uh, regime change there might mean for uh, for uh, relations between, not only between the Brussels and Poland, but also between Poland and Germany. Uh, and there are signs of tension uh, of a classical type between Poland and and uh, Germany both arming quickly and also with re relations with uh, with Hungary. So there are many uh, developments uh, with high risk components uh, uh, on both sides. You could say yeah. of the of the divide. You mentioned those in in the uh, around Russia, and I'm now talking about the Western components, yeah. which uh, adds to the feeling of great uh, uh, uncertainty as we move forward. Yeah. So brace ourselves, be aware of the risks, um, having a rather trying to have as much overview as possible, uh, I think would be necessary and willing to pay our uh, insurance 
premium for security uh, in order to avoid horrendous costs when we when we lose when we lose uh, control over the situation as we almost did on energy the the other day right? yesterday before yesterday when we were importing equivalent of energy from three nuclear power stations from abroad I mean that was a close call I must say so maybe yeah. okay, we should stop on on this note yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we will continue. Oh. Are we? Yeah. I think it has flowed ganska bra. Yeah. Jag känner mig rätt trygg med upplägget faktiskt hela tiden. Mm. Det blev lite lång kanske, men inte längre än Francilio. De har ju uppe i en, en timme och 15 minuter på sina. Mm. Mm. Och ämnet är ju högaktuellt, så att jag tror nog att det blir ett visst intresse för det. Jag tycker vi fick med väldigt mycket av relativt sofistikerade nyanser där också, mm. faktiskt. Men du, jag känner att jag borde lätta nu. Kan vi säga... Och du, ja, du är redaktören för det här och du kan väl lyssna igenom och ja, göra vad du vill. Och, ja. så, kan vi, så tycker du då, ja, jag, är, jag är i dina händer när det gäller vad vi gör med det här. Men, men jag tror att det är bra att vi inte hade så mycket lokala omnämnanden. Jag, jag tänkte att vi behöver inte Lars-Erik, Henrik Landeholm just nu. Men, men skitsamma. Jag tycker att det vi höll det på en nivå som, som gör det ut, utom akademi relevant. Ja. Att, inte bara som en liksom en ja, just det. vårt gamla, gamla skämt om folkhögskola och sånt där. Ja, det, det, det kommer att hamna på akademins hemsida va? Och, ja, ja. och Maria hjälpte mig igår nu så att vi, vi enkelt kommer att kunna länka in det på första sidan. Mm. Nej, jag menar inte att vi inte ska göra det. Jag bara menar att det är bra om vi har en ton som gör att det kan vara användbart också bort utanför akademins liksom, referensram. Ja. Så får vi höra sen med Concilio. Uppenbarligen ja. har han, han, har lite, han är lite tjockad nu. Eller de är lite tjockade på sin hemsida, ser jag. För att de har inte lagt ut någonting av det som vi har gjort ännu. Aj, aj, aj. Då har jag gått för snabbt med min senaste text som jag där det står att Nu har de har featured articles alltså och eh, den sista den, den har nu det är support of allies Japans and the Netherlands to join US effort in chip war with China. Det är mm. deras senaste och dessförinnan var den här eh, som jag skrev om EU presidency mm. och dessförinnan var det COP27 och dessförinnan mm. var det min om war of attrition. Så att, de men jag har inte varit med på länge där. Nej, du är inte med på sen... Eh, eh, ja, det är, det är länge sedan. Det är, det är nog eh, i oktober. Mm-hmm. Så att, ja, jag, jag kan inte... Sen, liksom... Min podd är ju inte heller ute. Min, min podd är inte ute ännu. Jag ska höra, jag har inte haft kontakt med dem på länge, någon av dem faktiskt. Jag har gjort flera andra saker dessutom. Men jag, jag, jag ska inte bekymra mig om det Nej. nu. Kan vi säga så här så länge, Lars-Erik? Ja, bra, bra. Jättebra, tack så du ha. Tack. Hej.